All our messages are online. Preston usually has them up every Sunday night. So if you've missed or if you were working with the kids, you can always catch up or stay with us. But I got to listen to Mr. Radley last Sunday night. And I uh, appreciate him filling in for me and giving us a little break with uh, our second little boy. Thank you for your prayers. He's uh, in the back on display if you want to go back and check him out. Uh, we're in Luke 16. Luke 16 on this Father's Day. I was talking to Radley before the service, and uh, if you don't know, Radley's a uh, professional chef, caterer, extraordinaire, and uh, that's why we're eating at his house on July 4th. But anyway, he was telling me that uh, the event house that he works at usually does uh, usually does a Mother's Day brunch, and he said they schedule the Father's Day brunch. He said, you know, on the Mother's Day brunch, we were packed. We had to turn people away. Father's Day brunch. Mr. Radley's here. What's going on, ladies? What's going on? That's what I want to know. No respect, Kelvin. No respect. Being a father is hard, I'm telling you. Uh, I'm starting to realize that more and more. Uh, not so much, you know, that number two is here, but uh, Grady, just the older he gets, you know, two and a half year old on the way to church this morning in the back seat, uh, I'm trying to explain to him. I, I don't know why he asked, but. He wanted to know why, um, why guys, it was okay for them to take their shirts off in public and why ladies couldn't. And so I had to try and explain to a two-and-a-half-year-old why, why guys could not wear the shirt. And I just uh, I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea. I have no idea what to say. So uh, it made me even more worried about the talk one day. So happy Father's Day. If you are a father, uh, I pray that you have a good, good weekend. I'm not going to bash you this Sunday. I'm not even going to preach at you. But um, by the end of these Luke and Parables, dads, let me give you a little challenge here. You should be able to take your kids through these Luke and Parables. I told you at the beginning, the Luke and Parables are parables that are well known. I mean, we know about the, the prodigal son. I mean, these are, these are parables that you can tell your kids. So dads, you take notes here. And when your kids get old enough, you can tell them these stories, all right? So you better be able to pass these along. If not, we're kind of wasting our time up here, amen? So you make notes here. We're in Luke chapter 16. Let me tell you what Luke chapter 16 is about. It's a little bit of a tricky parable. Um, you know, if you went to college, and you, especially if you went to college and you lived on campus uh, in a dorm, you know that pranks are the norm. I mean, pranks are what you live for in college, especially if you live on campus. And I I was on campus, and more than that, I was in a dorm. More than that, I was in a a football dorm. So it's just all football players in this one dorm, no air conditioning. You think it's hot now? No air conditioning, 110 football players, sweaty, stinky, fat, ugly football players in one dorm with no air conditioning. And uh, we had to share bathrooms, share showers and all that. Well, pranks were the norm. And to be able to pull off the best prank, you know, it, it elevated you. It doesn't matter how good of a ball player you were. If you could pull off the best prank in the dorm, I mean, you were in there, right? And you were the friend of everybody. Well, uh, you may remember some of the pranks when you were in college or maybe uh, even younger when you were in high school. I still remember some of the pranks that got pulled in my dorm. Um, when I get together with old college buddies and we start to reminisce, we can still remember. It seems to be the things that we talk about. They're not classes. They're not even girls, really. We end up talking about, hey, you remember when I, you remember when I leaned that 50-gallon trash can full of water against your dorm door and knocked on it, walked away? Yeah, I remember that. Flooded your room. 
Yeah, you remember when I took the, uh, all the tires off of your truck and stacked them outside your dorm room door and left lug nuts as a trail all the way to your truck? Yeah, that was good. How about the time that I, I took the camper off the back of your truck, flipped it upside down, and filled it full of water? You remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Uh, we all have those stories. Probably one of the most famous college prank stories comes from the West Coast, sad to say. Uh, USC and Caltech, pretty big rivalry out there as far as schools go. But uh, Caltech's kind of a more of a, uh, uh, it's more of an egghead school compared to USC, if you will. It's, it's more of the MIT of the West, okay? Well, Caltech, uh, they decided that they were going to prank USC. USC just happened to be in the Rose Bowl that year. I don't remember who they were playing, but they were in the Rose Bowl. And Caltech students, a couple of them, they decided they were going to do something really big. And they broke into the USC campus. USC campus, what I'm told, is in part of a, a really a bad part of uh, California. And so they really locked down the campus at night. Well, these guys from Caltech broke into the USC campus, broke into the band uh, building, broke into the band director's office, got in the band director's office, jimmied his filing cabinet, and got in there to where the Rose Bowl cards for those people sitting in the stands would be. If you ever seen, you ever watched one of these football games where you get everybody in the stands, they hold up a certain card and it ends up spelling out something, you know, go Trojans, okay? Well, that's what they had, and the band's responsible for that. They give them to all the student section or what have you. Well, these Caltech students broke in there, took all the USC ones out, made new ones. Made new ones, put them back in the band area's deal, shut the deal, went out. Nobody ever knew. And you can't tell by just looking at one of those things. I mean, you just got a piece of something. On one card. It takes hundreds of these cards to actually spell anything out. Well, these guys were genius. So they put them back. You get to the Rose Bowl, one of the biggest, you know, games, pomp, and pageantry of all college football. You get to the Rose Bowl, and halftime comes, and the band director says, you know, whatever he says to get the cards up, and the cards go up. Instead of seeing uh, USC, it says Caltech. They're not even in the game. So the band director freaks out, and he says, you know, get rid of those, bring up the next ones, which is supposed to be the Trojan logo. Pulls up the Trojan logo. What is it? It's the Caltech fighting beaver, whatever it is. Right? That's a great prank. But you know, you know what it included? It included uh, trespassing, breaking and entering, theft. Major stuff here. But you got to give the guys credit, right? You got to say, you know what? Uh, and I don't condone breaking the law and whatnot, but that was, that was good. You've you got to like it, right? You've got you to give them credit for their ingenuity. You've got to give them credit for their creativity, right? Luke chapter 16 is kind of like that. You've got to give the guy in Luke chapter 16 a little bit of credit. He, in a sense, uh, is a bad guy. And it's a bad example with a good lesson. Remember that. We're going to look in Luke chapter 16 at a bad example, but a good lesson. Let me give you one more prank, because i got to brag on myself. I came out of the football dorm one time, and I had to, had to get somewhere very real quick. Probably go see Kimberly. And I came out, and there was a uh, Domino's pizza truck blocking my truck. I couldn't get out. I had to be somewhere. And uh, I waited and waited, and the Domino's guy is just milling around in the football dorm. I don't know what he was doing. Probably waiting on a football player to find his money. And so I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the Domino truck. So I got in the Domino's guy's truck, and I drove that thing to the other side of campus. 
turn the radio on full blast, windshield wipers, air conditioner, flashers, blinkers, everything I could find, rolled the windows up, locked the doors, uh, and left it there. And uh, needless to say, they never delivered Domino's Pizza to the Mayhan football dorm again. But you know what? I was the man. Never got pizza. Never got those $5 Domino's again. But everybody knew. Ruiz stole the Domino's truck. Grand Theft Auto. But you got to give it to me. Right? you got to give it to me. Let's give it to this guy here in Luke 16 that Jesus takes note of here. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, that's Jesus. Here we go. We get another story, another parable. There was a rich man. When he says rich, he means really, really rich. This is how rich he was. He was so rich, he had a manager. And this manager, some of your texts may say steward instead of manager, but we would call him a manager. This manager, or steward, was reported to have squandered all the master's possessions. Verse 2, and he called him, this is the master calling the manager, and he called to him and said, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. In Israel, uh, if you were really, really rich, you didn't do your own work. You essentially had a uh, personal assistant that managed all of your stuff. You could have so much money that you decided it was too much work to even manage what I got. And so they could hire a guy, a steward, and this steward would be in charge of everything the master had. Everything. This steward would be charged of all the finances, all the material possessions, all the land, everything that the master had, he gives to the charge of the steward. This is where we get the idea of stewardship. The master bestows all the rights upon this manager. And this guy now, he has the ability to do a couple things. He has the ability to do good for the master. But he also has the ability to do what? He's got the ability to lie, cheat, and steal. And because he has all the keys to the house, because he has the checkbook of the master, because he knows all the bank account numbers, what can he do? He can be a bad guy really quick. And that's what happens here. We don't know why, but for some reason, this steward begins to go the wrong way. The master finds out about it and calls him up to account. You see what it says? He says... Give an accounting for everything that you've been done. He says, I want an audit of what's been going on. I'm calling you to an account. And not only that, when you get down, giving me, get done giving me your account, uh, you are dismissed. You see, it was uh, common that a master and a, uh, a manager, I keep getting those names confused, a master and a steward, if the steward were getting fired... One of the last things that he would do so he could pass the books and pass all of the uh, checking accounts, etc., over to the next steward, he would have to give a full account. He would say, here's where we are on all of your possessions. Give that back to the master, and then he was done. And that's exactly what the master says. Hey, I hear you've been swindling. I hear you've been skimming from my possessions. I hear you've been taking a little off the top. I found out about it. Now, you give me an account, and you're out of here. So here's this steward. He's getting canned. But he's got a few days left. Now look at what he's going to do with his last couple days with all the full rights and all the full possession of the master. Look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, he gets to thinking, what am I going to do? What shall I do since the master is taking the management away from me? 
I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He says, essentially, you know what? I've been doing this for so long, I don't have any other skills. I've been sitting on the bench watching these guys work for so long that I'm not strong enough to get out there and dig myself. So I can't go that way. When I lose this job, what am I going to do? I can't work and I'm too proud to beg. This guy's in a quandary. Essentially, he would be blackballed from ever doing this again. I mean, you're not, who's going to hire a cheating, lying, thieving steward to come take over their possessions? Nobody. So this guy, he's out of luck right here, and he realizes it. That in just a, shoe, a short few days, he's going to lose everything that he has. So what does he do? Look at verse 4. He says, I know what I shall do. For that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He begins to plot. He says, I've got an idea. And this idea is such an idea that when I lose this job, when this part of my life ends, and I go to the next part of my life, people are going to even welcome me into their homes. I'm not going to be shunned. I'm not going to be rejected. I'm going to make myself friends. Here's how he's going to do it. Look at what he says. Verse 5. And he summonsed each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first. Now, here's who his master's debtors are. The master gave his possessions and all the rights to all that stuff and all the management to the steward. The steward would then go out and he would lend out. He would allow people to borrow from all the possessions of the master. And he would charge interest and he would make money off of that stuff. And whatever the markup would be, that's however rich the steward could become. And he could make the master more money and he could make himself more money. And so he would go to these debtors and one guy would say, Hey, your master's got all these fields of olive trees. Uh, I'd like to rent some of these fields and I'll produce the crops and then I'll give you back a percentage. And the manager would say, okay, and we'll write up a deal and we'll sign it and that'll be the deal. I'll give you this and now you owe us this. So here's what the master, uh, the master's steward decides to do. He summoned each one of his master's debtors and began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, and he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down, and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. You see what he's doing? He's marking down the price of what they owe. Now let me give you a little insight into this on how this worked. Uh, In the nation of Israel, in Exodus, Deuteronomy... Uh, A couple times, I think even Leviticus, it is forbidden for a Jew to loan to another Jew and charge them interest. You could loan to your fellow Jew, but you couldn't charge them interest. That was just part of being a brother. That That was just part of being in the nation. So here's one of the reasons why you had a steward. is because the master didn't want to get caught lending for interest. So he would hire a steward, he would hire a manager. And that would free him from any of the responsibility of charging interest. See how that works? So now it's the manager's responsibility to charge the interest. So the manager would charge the interest. Uh, If you borrowed uh, 50 gallons of olive oil, then they would write a bill for you, not for 50 gallons of olive oil and 50 uh, gallons of interest. They would write a bill for 100 One of the ways that the manager would get around it was that he would not say, here's what your principal is and here's what your interest is. He would just say, here's what you owe totally. And so legally, the Pharisees would let you get away with that. You see the legalism again right here? They would let you get away with it if you just said he owes 100, not 50, and 50. So here's what the steward does. 
He goes to all the debtors of the master and he says, how much do you owe the master? And he says, well, my debt is 100. I borrowed 50. We raised it 50. I owe 100. He says, you know what? Cut that 50 that you owe that is going to come to me. Cut that off. You just owe 50 again. Now, what do you think that debtor is going to say? He's going to say, hot dog. Sure will. He's going to scratch that out and he's going to go back to what he really actually borrowed. Goes to the next guy. How much wheat did you borrow? I borrowed this much wheat. How much did we say you owe? We say you owe that much. He said, now cut it back. You just owe what you borrowed. So here's what the guy does. He makes for himself friends so that when his job ends and the rights to all these possessions goes away, he's now made friends over here so that in his new life, what did he say? He might be received into their houses. Now keep going. Jesus is going to apply this. Verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. That word shrewdly, it's the Greek word phronimos. It's the word that literally means intelligent or wise. It kind of has a negative connotation in our language, the word shrewd. But don't be mistaken here. Uh, it's not that he's praising him for doing something uh, underhanded. What the guy did was, in fact, maybe honest uh, more than any other act that he's ever done. He was a cheat. You see what it says? He was the unrighteous manager, but he's going to praise this unrighteous guy. His past was full of cheat, lies, and deceit. He said, I've got to give you credit right here. Why? Because you've done something that's pretty intelligent. You've done something that's pretty wise. What was it that he did? He knew what his future held. And before his uh, time ran out, if you will, he took his money and he made friends. He knew something. He knew that his money and his possessions were going to run out. Because when he left that job, none of what he had was his. Whose was it? It was all the master's. So if he lost that job, he lost his house, he lost his possessions. He basically went in naked and he's coming out naked. You follow me? He didn't have anything when he took the job and he doesn't have anything now. He turns it all over, gives all the keys, all the checkbooks, all the credit cards, all the bank account information. He gives it all back to the master. But what he does do is when he knows the end is coming, he acts wisely with the time he has left. And he says, how can I set myself up for the future? Because if I leave right now, I've got nothing and I'm going to be shunned and I've got no friends and I've got no money and I've got no job and I've got no skills. What can I do? He does something wise. He goes to the debtors while he still has time. He says to the debtors, how much do you owe? Well, I owe 100. No, you don't. You really only owe 50, right? Right. Mark it back down to 50. Who would have got that extra 50? The manager. Who would have got the extra 20? The manager. So what does he do? He says, you know what? I'm going to lose this money anyway. Follow me now. I'm going to lose this money anyway. So here's what I'll do. He doesn't cash it out. He doesn't say, go ahead and give me my 50. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, go ahead and give me my 50. I want mine now. He says, strike it off the books. You keep it. You keep it. In a sense, he invests his money. He doesn't take it, which he might have been able to do. He invests it 
in those relationships. He invests it in the relationships so that what? When his job's gone and when his money's gone, he knew that day was coming. Now what's going to happen? He's got friends in low places. Amen? He invests his money. He lets his money go so that one day there will be those who receive him gladly. Now look at what Jesus says here at the end of verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly or wisely or intelligently. And then Jesus jumps in here and he gets straight to the point. For the sons of this age are more shrewd or more wise in relation to their own kind than the sons of the light. Who are the sons of this age? It's the lost. It's the pagan. It's the Gentile. It's those who are without God. Who are the sons of the light? That's the disciples. That's us. That's the believer. That's children who have been enlightened. Children who have a focus that's not just what? For this age, but it's a focus that goes beyond the darkness of today. You see, people of this age, they know only about this age. They care only about this age. Jesus says, people in this world, you know what? They're smarter than you are who are the children of the light. It's ironic, the statement, because he says, we're children of the light. We have a flashlight into the future. We have been enlightened. We know what eternity holds. You've got Christians, disciples, you've got the whole big picture. We should act accordingly. But we don't. And as a matter of fact, guys who are in darkness, children of this age, sons of this age, are smarter sometimes than we are. And we've got more information. How are they smarter? He says, at least, even if they're crooks, they wise up when they know the end is near. Follow me now. They wise up when they see the end. And they know, everything that I think I have is about to disappear. And at least they're smart enough, like this guy, like this crook, to invest in something not temporal, but eternal. Don't just take the money, maybe invest it, hold it, try and build it up. He does something wise. He does something intelligent. He does something shrewd. He says, I'm going to invest in something that's worth a lot more. I'm going to invest in relationships. I'm going to invest in people. I'm going to take my money and I'm going to give it away. And Jesus says, you know what? I've got to give that guy credit. He's a crook. He's a son of this age. He's in darkness. But you know what? Sometimes what I see on this earth is better than what I see among my disciples. These guys are smart. These guys are sharp in some ways. And we need to take note. You know what this verse is? This verse is uh, the same feeling that I get every time I see a guy riding around in my neighborhood on a 10-speed with black slacks and a white button-up with a black tie. You know what I'm talking about, right? Every time I see those guys riding around in my neighborhood, you know what I think? I think, wrong message, but I've got to like the guy's creativity. I've got to like the guy's faithfulness. I've got to like his commitment. I've got to like his audacity that he would get out there, pedal on his bike, let me back up. The first thing I think is, it's way too hot to be wearing that giddy-up. But come on, i got to give it to the guy. He's out there doing it. He's knocking on doors, and he's doing it. Amen? 
And I got to think, here we are. We got the right message. But if I asked our church to get out there, get, get on your beach cruiser and go door to door in your own neighborhood, much less another neighborhood, and knock on the doors and just invite them to church, much less, much less share the law and grace with them, you got to give it to the guys. Jesus says, we've got to give it to this guy. He's the son of this age. He's in darkness. He's a crook in the past. But at least he wises up when he knows what's coming. Jesus says, we're children of the light. We know what the future holds. For some reason, we don't, we don't do the same thing. Now, keep going here. Verse 9, he's going to give us a command. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Some of your translations may say mammon. It's just a reference to money in this world. He's going to talk about money in this world and he's going to talk about money in the world to come. Or wealth in this world or wealth in the world to come. Temporal or eternal, alright? So when it says wealth of the unrighteous, you you just think, the money I make in this world, physical, that dollar bill, that change... That physical stuff of this earthly materialistic life. Here's what I want you to do. Command. Make friends for yourselves. How? With that money. So that, here's the goal. So that when it fails, notice that it's not if it fails, but it's when it fails, because it will fail. So that when it fails, what? They. Who's they? Draw a line back up to the friends you've made. Make friends with your wealth so that when it fails, they, those friends you've made, will what? They will receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, if you had to draw a circle around verse 9 and tie it back into a previous verse as a parallel, where would you draw a line to? Be back to verse 4. Verse 4 says what? I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He says, this guy did something smart. He made a plan. He knew what he was going to do when this life, when this station in this guy's life, you see the parallel? When this life as a manager ends for me, and I become a bum, when I become homeless, I know what I'm going to do when I get to that transition. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be ready to the degree that people are going to welcome me into their homes. Jesus says, verse 9, you need to be ready so that when that transition comes, so that when money fails, when your life is over and it's gone. The old question uh, of the rich guy, how much money do you think he left? Answer, he left all of it. So that when money fails, and it will, when you leave and you don't take any of it with you, have you been wise enough to have previously invested it so that you will see the results of your investment in your next station of life. You you see the parallel? And Jesus says, just like this guy, he set himself up so that he could be welcomed into the houses of now his friends. See what Jesus says? He says, you're going to be welcomed into what? Eternal dwellings or eternal houses. Here's the point. Make friends with your money here on earth. Because it's coming to an end. And if you know, children of light, that it's coming to an end, use it now. Don't hoard it. Don't build bigger barns. Don't be a fool. Previous parable. Don't store it up. He says, give it away. Be like this guy. He was sharp. He was smart. 
He invested it so that he would see a return even in his next life. Not his manager life, but in his poor life. And now he's got friends. Jesus says, one day, when you do that, if you do that, he says, you're going to make friends for yourself. And he gives us an interesting picture here. Uh, It's an interesting glimpse into heaven. He says, there are going to be people who meet you at the pearly gates, grinning with their pearly whites. Why? Because you have taken that temporal, material, earthly stuff, and you have paid it forward. And one day, after you have invested it, before you lose it, when you get to heaven, you're going to meet folks that have been changed, that it's made a difference in their life. And they're going to be standing there and going to say, hey, I remember you. When I needed $50 to pay my light bill, you were there. I remember you. Uh, You're the guy who gave this guy $100 to go on a mission trip. And when he came on that mission trip, he shared the gospel with me and I got saved. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of an old Ray Bolt song. We don't like Ray Bolts now. It's too too pop something, right? Old song, uh, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. You ever heard it? I remember... uh, I remember the youth minister that I grew up under. Uh, I tracked him down last night. He's a pastor in Florida somewhere now. I tracked him down because I think about him often because he is a landmark in my spiritual life. I tracked him down last night, sent him an email at midnight just thanking him for everything that he had done. Well, when he left that youth ministry, I was still a youth, and he went to be a pastor. I remember them singing that song to him, and I remember him standing there weeping. And I remember everybody else standing around weeping because they sang that song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. And the song goes that when you get in heaven, there are going to be people who come up to you that you may not even know and says, Hey, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for investing in this. Thank you for investing in that. Because I'm here because of it. Jesus says, Listen, there's going to come a day when you're going to enter heaven. And it should be a welcome reception by those who you've touched. In specifically, don't miss it here, specifically in the context of how you use your money. Don't try and write it off as time or uh, anything else. Jesus is talking about your money. Keep going here. Verse 10. He who is faithful, we're going to get some moral lessons here from Jesus. He who is faithful in a very little thing. What is that very little thing he's talking about? That earthly possession, that money that we have. He who is faithful in that very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Is that a true earthly principle? That your boss is going to trust you with a little bit before he trusts you with a lot? He's going to give you a little bit of responsibility before he gives you a lot of responsibility? Yeah, that's a true earthly principle. Jesus takes that earthly principle. Now look at the next verse. He's going to turn it into a spiritual and eternal principle. Verse 11, therefore... If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, money you have in this world, who will entrust you the true riches? Who will entrust to you the true riches? What are the true riches? Keep going. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, that's the picture of a steward. Did the steward own anything of his own? No. He was entrusted with another man's wealth. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? That which is your own. Do you realize that everything you have in this life is temporary? I mean, we all know this. 
Everything that we have is temporary, and in a sense, we have just been declared stewards over it. I mean, it's not even ours. Even if you don't say that it's given to you from God, you've got to agree that you can't hold on to any of it. We just have it temporarily. We just have it as a manager. We just have it as a steward. Jesus says, listen, we can't trust you with the things that you've just been given to manage. Why do you think that in eternity I'll give you those things that are truly yours? Where is the only place that we will have things that are actually ours for eternity? It's in eternity. A couple points here I want to I make. Number one, this text does not teach that you can buy your way into heaven. Okay? Nowhere in this does it even infer that with your money you can impress God to such a degree that you're going to make your way into heaven. No, you still have to deal with sin and you still have to deal with your unrighteousness. We're talking to who here? Disciples, believers, with how they now act after they are children of the light. So don't be fooled, number one, into thinking that this text teaches that you can buy your way into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Second thing I want to point out here to you is this text does teach something that we don't always talk about. That one day you will be rewarded for what you do on this earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That one day you will stand in judgment. And you will be judged for the deeds on this earth. Talking to Christians. Whether good or light. Good or bad. Literally it says good or light. Light meaning there ain't much there. When God puts the deeds of your life on a balance, on a scale, says here's all the wood, hay, and stubble, and that all burns up. Here's what's left. He says, this is going to be light. We will be judged, Christians. God will evaluate our life. Not on the basis of salvation. That has been taken care of and that has been paid for. But as children of the light, we will do what? Go back to the second verse. We will give an account. As managers as stewards of what we have been entrusted with. Did we act wisely? Like this crook. Did we invest it in things that were not just temporal, but were eternal? We will be held to an account. Let me finish up here. Verse 13. Jesus lays down really a foundational principle for how this can come true in the believer's life. Here's the bottom line. No servant, verse 13, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve. It's the idea of worship right here. It's the idea of idolatry. You cannot serve God and well, you know, if you were a servant or a slave or a steward, a manager in this day and age, it wasn't a part-time deal. It was your life. It was full-time. You weren't doing anything else in the evenings. It was everything. Jesus says this is a full-time gig. You can't split your life up. You can't sit on the fence. You can't be focused on gaining the world and focused on moving forward with the kingdom at the same time. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Paul said to Timothy, give a warning to those guys who trust in their riches that they will fail them. There will be many who stray away from the faith because of riches and the love 
of money, which is the root of all evil. Not money itself. Money itself is ambiguous. It can go either way. It can be used for evil, which is the tendency of this world, or it can be used for good. He says, but we have this draw. We have this tendency in our sinful nature to fall in love with our money. Jesus says, well, where do you want to be successful? Where do you want to be successful? Radley preached last week. What is your primary burning desire? Is it for this world? Is it for Christ? And to know Him. If it's for Christ and to know Him, then what did we learn about Christ and His goals last week in Luke chapter 15? Can you tie these two chapters together? Luke chapter 15 was what? The heart of the Father for the lost. And in turn, what should be the heart of the evangelist. What is Luke chapter 16? Not the heart of the evangelist, but the head of the evangelist. What should our mindset be? We should be creative. We should be creative when it comes to using our money to do what? To pay it forward in relationships for the sake of Christ. So that one day when we enter heaven, there will be those waiting on us that said, Thank you for not hoarding your money. Thank you for investing not in the temporal, but in the eternal. I'm here because of you. And I'm smiling, welcoming you in to the pearly gates because of the investment you made. Children of light, what do we need to know? We need to realize the same thing that this guy realized. This life is about to end. This life as a manager is coming to an end. We see what is beyond. Just like this guy, we see what's coming. What's coming? Eternity. I've got to face Jesus. I've got to give an account to Him for what I've done on this earth. What should I do? I should do what He did. I should find a way to make friends with my money now. And in the end, it'll pay off. So how do we do this? Christians, Cornerstone. Can I give you a little, uh, little word right here? Um... It's pretty simple. You may be wondering, well, what do I do? Do I sell everything I have? Be poor? Give everything away? Uh, No. Scripture doesn't teach that. In fact, you could make a pretty strong case through Scripture that uh, God might want us to make all the money we can for His sake and to invest it in places of eternal reward. Jesus never tells us to be poor. Colossians tells us we don't need to be ascetics here. There's nothing wrong with money. In fact, here, he says money can be good. It can be used wisely. So what do we do, church? You make, listen to me now, you make as much money as you can, reasonably and honestly. Let me qualify that. Reasonably and honestly. What do I mean, reasonably? You make as much money as you can in 40 hours. If you're out there working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours, you don't have time for your family, you don't have time to take family to church, you don't have time for quiet time, you don't have time for any of that, that's unreasonable. And that's not doing God any good, it's not doing you any good. You make as much money as you can, reasonably and honestly. What does that mean? Don't lie, cheat, and steal to do it. Do it with integrity. But you make as much money as you can. And you invest it. You invest it in places that you see are going to impact the kingdom. You know what? We need you to do that. 
We need you to do that. We need men and women to go out into this world and reasonably and honestly make a whole bunch of money so that we can pull off things like uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, so we can pull off things like the Salvation Army, so we can pull off things like uh, our Foreign Mission Board, so we can pull off major, major ventures like that, so we can start new churches like this, so we can pay for all this equipment. A couple weeks ago, you guys know that uh, we paid off all of our equipment. We owed about $8,000 on all this equipment. A guy called me. He said, you guys owe 8000 He said, if your church can raise $4,000, i will pay the other 4000 and we'll get all your debt taken care of. I said, heck you say. He said, yep, I'll do it. I said, now why would you want to do that for us? You don't go to this church? Why would you want to do that for us? He said, I've made it a habit. didn't even hesitate. He said, I've made it a habit in my life to invest in ministries that I think have the right priorities and have the right focus and are doing the right things and have a, have a positive future. And he says, I see that at Cornerstone. And he said, I want to invest in it. This guy, from our perspective, he gave his money away. He just wrote it off. He wrote it off. He's not going to get any return on that in this life, is he? He doesn't attend here. He's not going to come to the golf outing. He's not going to camp with us. He's not going to hear this wonderful preaching. He's not going to get any of it, folks. He wrote that off. But you know what he considered it? He considered it an investment into the kingdom. Because he sees what you are doing at this church. And he knows that the future is bright. He sees the priorities. He sees the focus. He says, I want to be a part of that. So what do you do? Make as much money as you can, honestly, reasonably. And then you find ways to invest it. You find a seminary student that can't pay his way to seminary, and you send him $50 a month so that he can get a roll of quarters and go wash his clothes in the public laundromat. I've been there. And if it weren't for people feeling sorry for me, sending me a roll of quarters now and then, I'd have dirty clothes. You find guys who are sold out for Christ's sake. Amen? There aren't very many out there. But you find them. And when you find them, you honor them. And you pay their way. You find ministries that are worth giving to. You find ministries like Team Impact that Preston used to work for. Men who are men of integrity. Men who are leaving their families for three out of four weeks out of the month. And they're investing in people all around the world. They're giving the gospel. And you invest in those ministries. You go and you find ministries who are, who are being the hands and the feet of Christ. Uh, met a guy one morning after our men's Bible study at the Houston Grill. He was sitting over in the corner, saw that we had our Bibles, got to talking to me. He says, I run a, a, a ministry in Athens. He said, I, I get together a bunch of homeless guys once a week. He said, I feed them, and then I bring someone in, and I let them share the gospel with them. We play a little music for them. He said, I just take care of everything. I, I feed them everything they need. I give them, I give them some essentials, toothbrush, toothpaste. He said, I do that, and then we preach the gospel to them. That guy didn't, he didn't get anything out of that. He writes that off. But he sees it as an investment. How much is it worth one day if you see one of these guys in heaven? Is it worth that investment? You better believe it is. Find ways that you can invest in fellow believers. From time to time, we, we get guys and we get families who are in need. A while back, we had a couple families in need. And somebody from the church came in and said, Hey, do we have any kind of benevolence fund that we can, as a church, give this person some help? And I said, You know what? We don't. We just haven't established that yet. And I was kind of, on one hand, disappointed that we, hadn't, we didn't have that ready yet. And on the other hand, I said, you know what? I'm kind of glad. Because the next thing I said to this person was, we don't have it right now uh, 
to give to them, organized, as a church. But you know what? It's your brother. It's your sister in Christ. Feed the sheep. You want to help them? You feel led to help? Go help them. You don't need to do through Cornerstone. You go help them. Find ways to invest. Find men and women to invest in. Find ministries to invest in. Find churches to invest in. The end's coming. We're going to transition from the day of manager to a day where we don't have access to what we have access to right now. But while we have it, I'm going to take as much as I have and I'm going to pay it forward to the kingdom. A couple questions for you as we close. You may want to ask yourself, what am I living for? What am I working for? What am I investing in? And what will I have to show for it in the end? Um, In Florida, one of the most popular grocery stores is Publix. They've spread up to Georgia now, so you guys know what Publix is. I keep on my bulletin board a quote from the guy who founded Publix grocery stores, the owner. He's a multimillionaire, made a fortune in the grocery business. I keep a little quote on my bulletin board near my desk from this guy. He was interviewed. He's a Christian. And he's just known for being two things, rich and being generous. Makes a whole lot of money, but he gives a whole lot of it away. And this person interviewing him asked, they said, uh, you know, how much, Mr. Publix, do you think you'd be worth if you hadn't given so much money away? Fair question. How much money do you think you'd be worth if you hadn't given so much away without skipping a beat? He looked at the uh, interviewer and he said, probably not very much. Probably not very much. Amen? Amen. One of my mentors, one of the last things he said to me in the time that I was able to spend around him, guy in Texas, he said, son, this life is coming to an end before you know it. Make sure your last check bounces. Make sure your last check bounces. Think about that. Let's pray.